please turn with me in God's word to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And just before we jump in and read, something to consider. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, again, we were living in Fayetteville, Arkansas. My dad is a football coach, but he, uh, he was out of coaching at the time. He was in private business in Fayetteville, and the head football coach at the time at the University of Arkansas was a man familiar maybe in name to some of you named Houston Nutt. And that was a year, it was 2001, it was a year, and this is going to show kind of how weird I am with sports and, and, uh, and names and dates, but it was 2001, and they, uh, they had two quarterbacks that year that they were kind of rotating. Both were injury prone, and it was, um, it was a guy named Zach Clark, and the other's name is Robbie Hampton, and both quarterbacks were battling injuries all season. Uh, Robbie Hampton was on the heels of an ACL injury the year before, and Zach Clark just continued to hurt his shoulder. And so the, the third-string quarterback was out for the year, and that year, uh, Houston Nutt, the, again, the head football coach at the University of Arkansas, did something almost unheard of. He went out uh, during the week, and this was in the season, during the week, and he watched an intramural football game, and he invited uh, an intramural John Rutledge to join the football team. And so, just like clockwork, I mean, in the next couple of weeks, Robbie Hampton got hurt, and then Zach Clark got hurt, and in a game, actually against Ole Miss, in comes this intramural quarterback, John Rutledge, uh, to play. And it it happened a couple of times that year where this, this again, this intramural quarterback played for this SEC football team. You know, we love stories like that, stories of condescension, where someone with great authority, great power, uh, stoops to find someone really with no credentials, no authority, no power. And Second Samuel chapter 9 is one of those stories. Second Samuel chapter 9 is one of the sweetest stories in the Bible. It's one of the sweetest pictures of love and loyalty and faithfulness that you will see. It is King David, so a man with great authority, great credentials, and he stoops to find, he goes after and pursues the lame Mephibosheth. And so let's give our attention to God's word, Second Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, 
and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba Saul's servant and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Amen. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Let's pray together. God of all grace, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. Pray that you would work through the weakness of the words coming out of my mouth to drive the hope of Jesus into us. Pray that your word would be food for our hearts this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at two things in this text this morning. The first is that the king's kindness, the king's covenant kindness, stoops to the surprising. And the second is that the king's covenant kindness exceeds our expectations. So the king's kindness stoops to the surprising and exceeds expectations. And so first... The king's kindness stoops to the surprising. Again, years and years ago, David makes a covenant with his friend, Saul's son, Jonathan. And in the covenant, David promises that he will not cut off his love, he will not cut off his faithfulness to Jonathan's descendants forever. And it's been years since this promise was made, but David remembers the promise. He remembers the covenant. And he's now looking for someone of the decimated house of Saul, the decimated house of Jonathan, to show kindness to. Is there anyone left that he could shower that covenant kindness upon? And the word kindness, it appears three times in our text. It's the Hebrew word hesed, the word for the love of the God of the covenant, steadfast love, covenant Love. And so you see it in verse in verse 1, in verse 3, and in verse 7. Verse 1, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness so that I may deal with him in a hesed way? And then verse 3, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And then in verse 7, do not fear for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And so to pursue this, David summons the former servant of Saul's house, Ziba, and he asks him this question again in verse 3, is there anyone left that I may show covenant kindness? And so Ziba tells David about this descendant, and he sends for him. I think we need to pause and remember that he sends for him.
promise for him, not because there was anything in this descendant that would in any way benefit David. He was called because of the kindness, the integrity, and the covenant faithfulness of the king's heart, of David's heart. And so Ziba goes and he brings Mephibosheth before King David. That is a great Bible name. I think that's one of the best Bible names. If you're a kid in the car on the way home, say that name five times as fast as you can. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. It's a great Bible name. But who is Mephibosheth? I think here are a couple of significant details of Mephibosheth's life. You may have picked this up in the text, but Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. He's the grandson of Saul. He had a tough life. He was a prince. He was perhaps a future king. And in one battle, in one battle, his father and his grandfather died, virtually ending the house of Saul. So in 2 Samuel chapter 4, you can read some of his background. We read that when he was five years old, when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, that is that they fell in battle, Mephibosheth's nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth is crippled in both feet. That's actually stressed in both narratives, chapter 4 and in chapter 9, in brackets, both of those narratives. Mephibosheth is lame in both of his feet. I want you to imagine being crippled in the ancient world. Our reading today, chapter 9, is approximately 15 years after the event that crippled Mephibosheth in chapter 4, and so he's lived approximately 15 years as a cripple. So he's lost his family. He's lost his position. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his potential future, and he's crippled. I want you to notice as well in verse 4, we read that he's been at the house of Makir in Lodavar, which is in the middle of nowhere. He was tucked away. That's where people like Mephibosheth would hide because he would be considered an enemy of the state. He would be considered an enemy of the state because he was associated with the house of Saul, someone who over and over and over again tried to kill King David. One commentator put it like this. When a new king uh, came to power, the king always needed to solidify his position, and so he wiped out the old regime. It was conventional political policy that you did not live if you were associated with the old regime. Everyone knew it, everyone believed it, everyone practiced it. And so what this means is the only way for David to be really secure, to be secure and safe in his kingdom, if he wiped out, if he hunted down and wiped out every other direct descendant of Saul. And that's why Mephibosheth most certainly is visibly shaken. That's why David opens in verse 7. Look at verse 7. And David says, do not fear. Because for Mephibosheth to be summoned by the king would surely have put fear in his heart. He's afraid. He says this. He's afraid because he thinks he's a dead man calls himself a dead dog. And so you see the picture. Let's look at Mephibosheth's resume. He's crippled, he's helpless, 
he's shameful. He's an enemy of the king. He has no potential future, no wealth, no position. There's nothing on his resume sufficient to bring to be at the king's table. To, I want you to just think about that for a second. To be Mephibosheth. To be called into David's house, David's courts, his palace. Why would you show this kind of favor to a dead dog, to someone like me? The standard policy for someone like me is to be an exile, to be killed, to be a nobody. But Mephibosheth never could have imagined what was coming, that he would receive the covenant kindness of the king. A number of years ago, I heard Derek Thomas preach on this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 9, and I still remember in that sermon that he said, I want you to imagine David's table. Imagine David's table. Who would be at David's table? There would be David the king. There would be Amnon, David's eldest son, and his half-sister Tamar. Tamar was believed to be extraordinarily beautiful. There'd be Absalom, Tamar's brother. Scriptures say that from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, there's no blemish in him. That's Absalom. And then there's Joab, David's nephew, a captain in David's army, so a soldier, a man's man. And then there will be Solomon at this table, the future king. So Derek Thomas in that sermon just kind of laid out who would be at the table. And he said, imagine Mephibosheth limping in to that room, to that site, every day for the rest of his life. He must have been daily reminded, I don't deserve to be here. I don't have anything to offer. I don't have any bargaining chips. There's nothing on my resume sufficient to bring to be at this table. Don't you love the line, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? There's a story of a pastor in the Chicago area that's associated with Moody Bible College named Joseph Stoll. Joseph Stoll um, went to visit a ministry that they were associated with, and the ministry was called the Shepherd's Home for Children. Shepherd's Home for Children was a home for children with Down syndrome. And so Pastor Stoll is going and he's visiting with the director of this home and this ministry. And the director was showing him uh, just all kinds of things that they do with these children. And he was saying, you know, we teach the gospel here. We teach that the word became flesh. We teach that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived teach the, these kids about the cross, that Jesus died the death that we should have died. We teach these kids about the resurrection, that Jesus defeated death. And we teach these kids that Jesus is one day, someday, going to come back and make all things right. And the director then paused and he said, Pastor Stoll, do you have any idea what our biggest maintenance problem is here at the Shepherd's course, that's kind of an odd question. Pastor Stoll said, I, I have no idea what your biggest maintenance problem is. 
and the director said our biggest maintenance problem is dirty windows because every day these kids wake up and they run to the windows and they press their hands and their faces against the windows and they say is today the day is today the day that Jesus is coming back there's a beautiful posture of a beautiful posture do we realize that what qualifies us to be recipients at the king's table is our neediness Sinclair Ferguson said the greatest enemy of rejoicing in grace is the thought that God will be gracious because of something that he sees in me David loves Mephibosheth not because he's attractive not because he's productive because he's good or faithful. David loves Mephibosheth because of a covenant. So this is where I think this is a snapshot of Christianity. You have a covenant-keeping king who brings in a poor outsider crippled enemy and gives him a seat at the table. Is that not what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that while we were still weak, while we were still helpless, while we were enemies, that Christ died for us. King Jesus' kindness stoops to people like Mephibosheth, to broken people. He came to seek and save the lost. He came after the weak and the wounded, the poor and the needy, the weary and the heavy laden. So what we see in Scripture is that he's not sleeping or slumbering, that he's not cold or distant, that he's not running away, but that he's pursuing. We see that with King David here. He's, he's the king who pursues with an intervening love to bring back his crippled, broken enemy and give him a seat at the table. Lord, why was I a guest? Is that your posture this morning? Do you own that you are a Mephibosheth? That's who the king pursues. So the king's kindness stoops to the surprising. The second thing that we see is that his kindness exceeds expectations. I want you to look at verse 7. Verse 7 really forms the heart of this chapter. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you will eat at my table always. Remember we said that David made a promise to Jonathan. That is in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 15. Jonathan said to David, Do not cut off your steadfast love from me forever. And David swore to that. That's what he pledged, and that's what he promised. But we don't have the stipulations of the covenant you know, drawn out for us in that text. That's all we're given is in verse 15. Do not cut off your steadfast love from me forever. And this is... This is just my speculation, but I can't imagine that anyone would have blamed David if he just did the bare minimum. Like if he just didn't kill his descendants, if he just let him stay kind of in his little corner of the empire. But I want you to look at how David showers him. David, David showers him with kindness. He, he showers blessings upon him. And he blesses him in unbelievable ways, which is why Mephibosheth said in verse 8, essentially, why me? Why? 
why would you be this kind of disfavorable to someone like me? I think the point here is that what Mephibosheth realizes about his king is that his king is not one who gives the bare minimum, but he will surprise. He will exceed expectations. Ralph Davis says in his commentary on 2 Samuel that David here at the hinge and heart of this chapter in verse nine or in verse seven, he promises three things to Mephibosheth. He promises protection. He promises uh, provision, and then third, he promises position. So let's just kind of walk through this. You see, in seven a, he promises protection. So he says in seven a, do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Again, I would love for you to be able to put yourself in the shoes of this poor, crippled, rejected young man who is scared to death as he stands before this king. And this king whose life was made so difficult by your grandfather. And to hear the king say, do not fear. I will shower my love on you. So he promises protection. And in 7b, he promises provision. He says, I will restore to you all the land, all the land of Saul, your father. Land is power. Land is riches. Land is wealth. I will, by an act of my love, not because you deserved it, not because you've earned it, I will, by an act of my love, move you from poverty to riches promises provision and then the third thing and this is the capstone he promises position so david says in 7c you mephibosheth you shall eat at my table always in other words david is saying mephibosheth i will adopt you i will adopt you into my family you will be mine you will be my child you will live in my court you will banquet at my table you will be my son so david extends to mephibosheth protection provision and position the picture in this passage is the king heaps blessing after blessing after blessing upon mephibosheth and yet this is our story too isn't it out of the bounty of the king's heart, he has protected us. Now, whoever you are, whatever you're walking through this morning, remember and cling to the promises of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who protects his people. He says, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed says the Lord and he's provided for us for the Lord God is a son and shield no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly and he has given us position he has made us his beloved sons and daughters the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children and children of God to all who received him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God and so the point is our king showers us with blessing after blessing after blessing he gives us protection he gives us provision he's given us an identity and a position 
know, this uh, past Christmas reminded me, I've been married now for eight years to my wife, Lauren. My wife, again, is from Colorado. Um, she came and spent the first Christmas with my family in Starkville, Mississippi. Uh, I'm the middle of three boys. I have an older brother and a younger brother. And my mom has always talked a really big game about when Christmas comes that all of the kids get an equal amount of presents. It's kind of a big deal that no one gets more than anybody else. And so, like, whatever the budget is, whatever the cap is, that she, she keeps it equal with everybody. Well, I remember still when my wife, you know, eight years ago came to Starkville for the first Christmas with my family, and kind of everyone got their presents, and they were all pretty equal. And then my mom and dad just kept bringing just present after present after present to my wife the first time that it really hit home that my parents like me, my parents really like my wife. So the presents just kept coming and coming and coming. And I, I remember my wife just kind of just kept saying, like, why why are y'all being this kind? Why why are y'all being this loving to me? Why would you be this favorable to me? And Christian my question is, is that the posture of your heart towards Jesus this morning? You are engraved on his heart. You are unsnatchable from his hand. You're bought by him. You're beloved by him. You're betrothed to him. You're guilt-free in Christ. There's no condemnation for you. Your hairs are numbered. Your citizenship is in heaven. You have been loved well. Are you regularly recounting the ways that God has been to the surprise that he exceeds expectations? Are you raising your Ebenezer stones? Fathers, are you leading your families? Are you regularly recounting the ways that God has been kind to you? Remind yourself that this is your story. Mephibosheth didn't deserve all of this. I mean, all of Saul's land, all of Saul's possessions. But consider this. Jonathan did. So in, David, in Mephibosheth comes because of Jonathan's work and Jonathan's covenant faithfulness. It's imputed to Mephibosheth. And so Mephibosheth comes into the king's presence, the king's table, to the king's feast. This is our story. We don't deserve all that the gospel provides for us. Because of Jesus' work and Jesus' faithfulness, in we come into the king's presence, to his feast, and to his table. So when the father sees you, he sees his son in whom he loves, and whom he well pleases. You are his child. You are home. You are welcome at his table. In closing, I, I love the 1980s movie, The Natural. It's a movie you might know it, but it's about the fictitious baseball player Roy Hobbs and his goal was to be the greatest pitcher that ever lived, and that was his trajectory. And literally, as he was on his way to the big leagues, he is sidetracked by this broken relationship, and he ends up getting shot and almost killed. And after months and maybe years of recovery, uh, he's transformed into this great hitter. And he gets called up to the big leagues to do this 
most fictitious team, the New York Knights. And in one of the greatest uh, sports movie scenes of all times, in this big game for them to win the pennant, Roy Hobbs hits a home run. And he hits the ball into the lights, and it's kind of, it's kind of this fireworks show. And as he's rounding the bases, you can notice that his side is now bloody. That he has, that the swing has done something to reenact the gunshot. And it's really this glorious picture that his brokenness has been restored. That his glory, in a sense, has been restored. But his side is bloody. That he still has this limp still has this dislocation. And I think it's a great picture for us. It's a great picture of the Christian life that our sin has wounded us and given us, all of us, a limp and a dislocation. We are bruised and broken. Like Paul, we are lost and undone. And we are conscious the rest of our lives of our weakness. We are conscious the rest of our lives of our dependence upon the king of grace. Is that your testimony this morning? Lord, help us be willing to say with great joy, my hope and my only hope is in the bounty of the king. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I Father, we thank you that you have loved us with a great love. Great is your kindness and great is your mercy to come to us. And so we give you thanks and praise.